All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At Close of Business, News Briefing. Welcome to At Close of Business. I'm Matt McKenzie with the top stories in WA Business this Friday, November 18. BHP is poised to substantially increase its exposure to copper and nickel after the board of takeover target Oz Minerals backed an increase offer. The Big Australian has submitted a non-binding indicative proposal to Oz to acquire 100% of the copper miner for a cash price of $28.25 per share. The offer values Oz at $9.6 billion. That's up from BHP's initial $25 per share offer, which Oz rejected in August. BHP said the offer price represented its best and final price in the absence of a competing proposal. The Oz board intends to unanimously recommend the increased offer. BHP Chair Ken McKenzie said the proposal would provide value to shareholders by increasing exposure to future-facing commodities, attractive synergies and adding to the company's pipeline of growth options. Copper producer Sandfire Resources is undertaking a $200 million capital raising to improve its financial flexibility. The proceeds from the fully underwritten offer will repay $50 million outstanding on an ANZ debt facility, cover $90 million of working capital and $60 million for growth and exploration projects. The company said in its ASX release that the offer price of $4.30 per share represented a 10.2% discount to its last closing price of $4.79. Rising interest rates are likely to bring an end to the state's housing boom, but the impact will be delayed until mid-2024, the Housing Industry Association predicts. In its latest annual economic outlook for Western Australia, HIA stated that higher interest rates will bring the current building boom to an end. The outlook also highlighted the ambitious but conflicting goals of the Federal Government and the Reserve Bank in relation to bringing on new housing. The Federal Government recently announced it would like to see one million new homes constructed in Australia over five years from 2024 in its latest budget. The HIA said this aim seemed at odds with the Reserve Bank's increase of the cash rate by 2.75 percentage points over six months, the fastest rise in a generation. And finally, grain farmers hit the jackpot in a year when the state's economy grew 3.1%, with agribusiness, transport, ICT and the arts all delivering double-digit growth. Measured by gross state product, Western Australia ranked below the average for the 2022 financial year, according to data released today by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Victoria's economy expanded 5.6%, while South Australia increased by 5.1%. While mining is unambiguously the biggest industry in Western Australia, production fell slightly due to adverse weather conditions impacting iron ore mines, among other factors. Agriculture delivered a stellar year with a 30.3% rise in value added, which the Bureau said was driven by a strong grain harvest. And coming up next, I'll go in-depth into this data with Jordan Murray and explore some takeaways from the collapse of FTX. Stay on top of the latest news stories that are impacting your business, industry or sector. The New Look Business News app gives subscribers breaking news alerts, access to editions, articles by category, as well as our advanced data and insight search function to find projects, people and companies. It's your mobile portal to the latest intelligence on commerce, politics and industry, wherever you are. Stay informed at critical times and download today. Visit businessnews.com.au forward slash app 
download on the App Store or get it on Google Play now. Welcome back to Act Close of Business. I'm Jordan Murray, and as always on Friday, I'm joined by senior journalist Matt McKenzie. Matt, are you ever sick of coming in here on a Friday? No, because I'm excited to be here, Jordan. The Australian Bureau of Statistics releasing data doesn't excite the ordinary person, Matt. But then again, we're not ordinary people. CPI increases, WPI increases. These are the things we live for, Matt. And this morning, we got state accounts data. Tell me, you've written a story about it that's online now. What did you glean from this morning's release? It's a bit like the national accounts data, like GDP, except it's for the state or states and it only happens once a year. So the quarterly data that's usually released for states that measures the economy is actually just state final demand, so it doesn't include trade. Uh, In the year to June 2022, the state's economy, Western Australia, grew 3.1% by this measure, gross state product. That's behind, say, Victoria, 5.6%, and South Australia, 5.1%. I think that just demonstrates the different um, paces of recovery from the pandemic, because people will recall that in the 2020 financial year, 2021, Western Australia actually performed quite well compared to other states. And so some states now have quite high numbers because they're coming out of periods where they had lockdowns or where they were really severely impacted. The thing that I think is particularly interesting in this, there's a there's a, a measure here called the real gross state income per capita, which to translate basically is you sitting at home, your purchasing power on average. It's a number that actually really matters. Sometimes some of this stuff can be a little bit obscure, but this is all about really your living standards. It's a, it's a number that directly correlates to your living standards. Now, it fell 1.1%, but that followed a massive increase, which we reported last year, of 17%. So the ABS basically said, uh, WA, you know, we were down slightly, but we are still maintaining a very, very high level on this metric. So that's positive, and it goes to show that there's much to be optimistic about and grateful for in this state, Jordan. Some interesting points in your article this morning. Uh, particularly agriculture seems to be a growth area for us at the moment. Construction isn't too surprising, but agriculture really shocked me because this is one of those industries that quite often we go out and speak to people and they talk about it being the next big thing, and we'll look at that. It, it's the big thing at the moment. Yeah, cracking year for agriculture. When you measure this by something called value added, uh, agriculture's contribution was up 30% to $8.5 billion and I'll get back to what value-added means in a moment, it's still quite small compared to, say, the resources industry, mining, uh, $170 billion value-added. That was down ever so slightly on the previous year, but it is a massive or the most massive contributor to our economy. That must be almost half of the total value-added in Western Australia, actually. Um, It's not necessarily the biggest employer. It still employs a lot of people, resources, It pays huge amounts of tax. It's definitely the biggest taxpayer. It's definitely the biggest exporter. And I would say it's most probably the biggest um, industry in terms of output per worker, which is always a good thing because that lifts wages and lifts living standards. So mining had a slightly softer year in good part thanks to um, issues around weather up at the iron ore mines. It was down ever so slightly. Agriculture was going gangbusters, though. And so uh, it was a big year for cereal production, for example, and that's why agriculture had such substantial growth. Transport and other growth industry was up 11.5% to about $11.5 billion, a nice coincidence of numbers there. IT, telecommunications and media was up 13% to about $2.4 billion. So that's measured by value added. And what's value added all about? It's about the product that you sell, how much you're selling, what you're selling it for versus um, taking out your input costs. So to give you an example, if you're a farmer, the things that might increase the value added in the farming industry are, you know, producing more stuff, selling it for a higher price, um, 
or reducing your input costs like, say, fertiliser, using petrol in your machinery, all the rest of it. So those numbers get taken out because that's actually value generated by another industry that you're using. So it's a good metric to determine which industries are contributing most to the economy. And resources, very much at the top there, but I'm sure people will consider it positive to hear that there are other industries that are growing. And Matt, you've done some very excellent work, in fact, on technology in uh, Western Australia, and readers and listeners can uh, look out for the next edition of Limitless, which we ran last year in Business News. We're doing another edition of that this year with some fantastic articles, which, in fact, I've contributed one, uh, and Matt, you've contributed the bulk of articles to that particular publication. Technology, though, in Western Australia, what did you glean from the data about that particular sector? Is it growing? Is it uh, any meaningful segment of what's going on in WI? So that 2.4 billion number, which was up by 13.3%, covers IT, telcos and media. And I can kind of lean a little bit on some of the data that I got together for Limitless um, when I formulate this response. And I won't give away too much detail there because readers will have to read that special publication when it comes out very soon. It's interesting, 2.4 billion. That seems like a small number when you think about telcos, media, IT, tech. And I think the reason for that is the tech businesses that earn the most revenue Uh, probably the more established ones that are kind of doing outsourcing for government contracts or business contracts. Whereas if you're a startup business, you might have four staff, but people aren't necessarily getting paid. You're not necessarily profitable for the first few years. And so all of the effort you're putting in isn't reflected in the state accounts or the national accounts or whatever metric you want to use until the business gets to that point where it starts to be profitable and starts to pay people. And there are a lot of fantastic, courageous West Aussies out there building tech businesses that put in huge amounts of time and energy and they don't necessarily get the business to be profitable or it takes them years before they get the business to be profitable. So so that number is not really necessarily a full um, demonstration of the, the effort that goes into that sector and the entrepreneurialism that goes into that sector. But Something that's interesting about all of this is people often debate how do we drive more diversification in the economy? And it's kind of like, well, nothing's stopping you if you're an entrepreneur doing something that's not mining or not resources, uh, but it can be a little bit more difficult. People say that they struggle to get private capital because it's easier to understand or investors find it easier to understand a mine than a tech business. If you're in Silicon Valley, though, it'd be the opposite. You go to a venture capital firm with your tech idea and they'd love it and they'd understand it. They'd see the opportunities for scale or whatever, whereas uh, you might go with them. You might go to them with a nickel mine, and then they'd say, "Well, why are you coming to me? I'm a tech venture capital company in Silicon Valley." So perhaps that's a frustration. Um, also, around the government, there are frustrations. Perhaps that it's not easy to go with a new idea and say, "Why don't you try this? Why don't you contract this?" Because it's a very bureaucratic sort of a system, and the state government's tried to change that with its market-led proposals. I don't know how successful they've been just yet. But it's positive that there's going to be more opportunities for sort of people with new ideas and startups to to break into it. Uh, Where I think that there is a bit of an issue or there should be a bit of a debate is that people are always requesting government funding. And it's not just about tech, by the way. There's lots and lots of industries that are requesting government funding. But, I mean, this data, looking at value-added, they take out subsidies and they account for taxes and all the rest of it. And that's a reminder that if you're an industry that requires huge amounts of subsidies, you're not really value-adding at all. You're really value-subtracting or taking value from somewhere else. And so uh, that's uh, that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast. It's something that gets reflected in the data because it's kind of underpinned by the economics of it. But look, if you want to diversify the state's economy, it's not necessarily about the government trying to pick winners and pump money into them. It's about making it easier for people to do business. 
Agriculture is an interesting example because I went to an event a few years ago and they were aiming to double the size of the grain industry in WA over, I think, about 10 years. And they've done, they've almost done exactly that. Um, how do you double the size of an industry like that? Well, in the case of agriculture, you need to either double the amount of grain you're growing in a particular hectare or double the number of hectares or double the price or some combination of all those things or you need to make it easier through logistics and have less waste or whatever else. And partly because the price has been driven up and partly through huge investments in logistics from CBH and elsewhere and partly through investments in improving the yields in crops, they have managed to pull off quite a stellar performance there. Um, of course, agriculture is a very cyclical industry. If the weather's bad, you might get a much worse result. But that's encouraging for, for, uh, for agribusinesses there and something that no doubt they'll be proud of, Jordan. And just as you say that, I got an email through from the opposition leader, Mia Davies, celebrating innovation in the agriculture sector, uh, particularly in the use of, and I'm quoting here, cutting-edge technology that's been used to boost production and capacity in all sectors within agriculture, whether it be drones to assess livestock movements or sensors to detect changes in soil conditions. She goes on to say that Western Australians should take this as an opportunity to learn about the agriculture sector, which I should do myself because I don't know anything about it, having lived in a city for my entire life. Now, Matt, usually I would make some sort of snide remark or some smarmy transition at this point in the podcast, but I'm not going to do that because I was laughing to myself or I was trying to stifle my laughs before while you were talking because I went online. Very rude. I know, it's very rude of me to look at uh, a little bit to do with cryptocurrency so that I'm not talking absolute nonsense for a couple of minutes, even though I have written an article on this, but forgive me, listeners. Um, and I saw an article from in The Guardian from Dominic Rush, who's in New York, uh, and the article's headline is New FTX Boss. We're going to be talking about cryptocurrency. Uh, New FTX Boss, who worked on Enron bankruptcy, condemns, quote, unprecedented failure. <laughs> U.S. corporate restructuring expert John Ray says, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls. Whoa. Isn't that just deeply amusing? Now, we're talking about cryptocurrency. I've written about this in the past. I find it an amusing, uh, if not curious, topic to learn about. Uh, I've heard some positive uh, case studies in where it's been used in the private sector here in Perth, but there is a, it's a very contested space, to say the least, in regards to the collapse of FTX Last week, Matt, you had some broader reflections on cryptocurrency. Pray tell what they are. Well, just firstly on the FTX matter, I read last night, I think it was Coindesk, um, some interviews about how that operation worked in the Bahamas. Uh, and Of course uh, it did. Yeah, well, or didn't work in this case. And there, let's just say there were some serious governance issues there. I want to take this opportunity, given that there are a lot of problems in the crypto market, to say, to say something I should have said a long time ago. And I hope... Um, I hope people who are uh, investing in crypto or whatever hear this because I often will see things on the internet and uh, there will be boosters out there that are really excited or optimistic about the opportunities for crypto and the blockchain and that's totally fair enough. The blockchain could bring some real benefits to society. But um, there is a reason to be cautious. So, for example, they will say, well, Paul Krugman said that the internet would be no more important or no more significant for the economy than the fax machine. And they say, well, he's wrong, um, and people who doubt crypto will be wrong. And then they'll say, uh, similarly, that people who doubted the impact of computers in the television were wrong, so ergo, people who doubt crypto will be wrong. Um, and yes, those people who doubted the impact of the internet and the computer of the, and the television were wrong. But there's a difference between the technology being incredibly successful and having an impact versus um, the 
investors making a lot of money out of it. To give you an example, Deliveroo, um, I don't particularly use Uber Eats or Deliveroo that often. I know a lot of people do. I think it's a fantastic technology helping people to, you know, let's say you're sick with COVID and you want to get food delivered to you through an app. It's great. But if you're an investor in Deliveroo, well, it didn't turn out so well. Um, and so that goes to a broader point. And I want to, I looked this up this morning so that I could say this because I, I always think of the example in the book Snowball about Warren Buffett. And I think this is so important to highlight for people. He says, he's talking about whether people, who benefits from, from the development of technology? Is it the investors usually or is it the consumers? Now, there's no doubt the consumers benefit. No doubt consumers benefit from Deliveroo. Um, there's no doubt that consumers develop, benefited from the car, for example, from a car being manufactured. But he says that there were 2,000 car companies in the first half of the 20th century in the US. By the end of the 90s, there were three. Now, he doesn't go into too much detail as to whether that number was whittled down mostly by M&A or companies failing, so we don't know. When I think of the example of crypto, I mean, there's at least 1,000 different coins out there I don't know if there's any easy way for them to do, go through an M&A process. I think there are ways to merge coins, um, but certainly what you've actually seen is a lot of coins just fail um, and fall off the map because um, they're not being used anymore. There's no demand because the actual purpose that they were designed for doesn't work. Are you telling me my yay coin is not worth <laughs> what I thought it was? Well, if it's backed by Kanye, then maybe it's a little <laughs> bit different. From 1919 to 1939, there were 200 airlines in the United States. As of the mid-90s, this is um, him saying this, not me, so uh, we'll, we'll leave it to Buffett to whether this was right or not, there had been zero money made from the aggregate of all stock invested in the airline industry over that time. Wow. Airlines, incredible technology again, really benefiting people's lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every airline business has been successful or made a lot of money. And so that's the the issue there. And he was speaking just before the dot-com bubble burst, speaking to tech investors. I believe it was in Sun Valley. Uh, and we saw through the dot-com burst process, yes, the internet, incredible technology, but that doesn't mean that every investment in every um, idea for a dot-com dot .com company will turn out to be sound. Um, so the blockchain might be big in the future, but that doesn't mean that every crypto coin will make bank for most people, and if you look at the example of, say, Luna, TerraCoin, FTX, the people who are invested in those um, have really been hit uh, terribly. Um, and you hear stories about people mortgaging their houses or whatever. These are always apocryphal or urban legends, so who knows? But you hear stories about people um, uh, mortgaging their houses to buy crypto or whatever else. Well, you know, you can only hope that those particular people didn't buy at the peak and haven't lost huge amounts of money and, and ruined their savings or whatever. So the technology, potentially you can make money out of it, but we should be under no illusion that it's always going to go in one direction, Jordan. The FTX example is interesting as well because, as I understand it, Sam Bankman-Fried had actually asked Binance to uh, acquire FTX to stave off a possible liquidity crisis, and then when Binance looked at the books, they decided it was such a mess that it was better to just let the whole thing fail. So I think that speaks to the sort of risk that you're getting into when you invest in some cryptocurrencies. I guess for me, the speculative nature of it all is what puts me off slightly or at least gives me pause because as a currency, the advantage of it doesn't make 
too much clear sense to me because fiat currency, which we exchange for goods and services, we decide the value of that uh, in the course of those exchanges. It doesn't seem to have any additional benefit to that. And then as a store of capital, it doesn't seem to make any sense because it's not contributing to any meaningful growth in productivity. Having said that, I've seen some interesting test cases for it, particularly here in Perth. And I will say that anyone who I have spoken to uh, about cryptocurrency in the past has been open about the fact that there is a lot of risk in investing in it and it is speculative. But I think in its current iteration, it is just very off-putting and, and I'm, it's been understated in the past, but you know the, the enormous energy required to mine this stuff is just mind-boggling. Well, uh, I guess if they're solar-powered, um, and you know, people have thought about doing that and hydro-powered mining, but you know, a few points. I mean, the thing is, I, I personally just feel the worst for people that got um, talked into it as mm. being, you know, a, a massive opportunity. If people go in there and they invest and they understand the risk, you know, fair enough. If you go in there, you understand the risk. You're a young person. You make a fair bit of money, and then you lose some money on the way, um, but you you come out overall better off or even if you go in there understanding the risk and you come out worse off as long as you're going in there being fully aware of you know the risk and the return and the potential consequences um, that's probably fair but I feel bad for people that were exploited you know in particular schemes or whatever um, to make one or two people rich now um, just as a, a broader point about the the use case of it I mean I get the point a decentralised currency not controlled by the government, you know, I can understand why that appeals to people. And we've, heaven knows, we've seen over the last couple of years that governments controlling currencies um, can end very, well, not very badly, but can end pretty badly when you start to get inflation running out of control. So governments are not necessarily perfect at these sorts of things. But the trouble with things like Bitcoin is, um, the value is, uh, what's the value exactly? What, what, what should be the exact value of a Bitcoin? It changes from one day to the next. So it's not terribly good for transactions because you go to the shop, you buy something in Bitcoin, and then when that shopkeeper eventually needs to transfer it back into Australian dollars so they can buy their next load of inventory, the value might have doubled, the value might have halved. It's They're taking on a massive risk. And if you're running a little small business somewhere, you don't want to take on that risk. You want the, the steady value of a of an actual currency that's actually stable. And you don't want to spend it if it's going to grow in value. Well, that's true as well. And then the, the second point about the, the mining of it brings another interesting question because people will say, ah, but Matt, the number of Bitcoins that we can produce over time is capped, right? So therefore we know that there won't be an inflation problem with Bitcoin. Okay, well, that's fair enough, but you could get a deflation problem. If you have a capped number of coins and the economy grows around it, basically you're going to have a deflation problem over time. Uh, the other thing about that is, and I'm not an expert on, you know, crypto uh, economics or you know how exactly the processing systems work and all the rest of it but you need to mine coins in order to um, process transactions and if you start to get to the point where you're mining your final coins um, the marginal cost of those coins and the amount of work that needs to be done to mine those coins is going to be absolutely enormous and if that's higher than the price of a bitcoin at that time then no one will have any incentive to mine any coins and there'll be no way to actually process transactions. That's the way I understand it. I could be wrong about that. But So there's a risk there. There's a risk that it becomes very deflationary. In 200 years' time, if the world economy is five times the size it is now, having had the same number of Bitcoins the entire time won't prove to have been useful at all. It'll lead to a deflation problem. You don't want a currency that has a deflation risk to it. Um, and so there are a lot of potential problems there with Bitcoin specifically. Lots of other coins have been created. Uh, maybe we'll get to a point where everybody wants to do transactions on the blockchain um, and it could bring a lot of other benefits too. I mean, I know the Reserve Bank's looked at it and other 
organisations have looked at it. Um, maybe there will be a future there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, buying Dogecoin and hodling, holding on for dear life for 20 years, will definitely make you a billionaire or anything like that, Jordan. And best of luck out there to those people out there who are investing and hoping for the best. To read more on the accounts data from earlier this morning, you can head online now to businessnews.com.au where the story by Matt is available. Uh, And subscribers can look forward to Limitless arriving in their inbox with a future edition of Business News. In the meantime, you can also listen to Mark My Words, which is out this afternoon. And Matt, thank you so much for your time on our close of business as always on Fridays. Thank you, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.